The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Thanks for your kindness. Thanks for your trustworthiness. Thanks for being you. Will you now look over this time here and draw near to us, make your word clear? And would you please, above all things, honor the name of Jesus? He is good. He's the one in whom we hope. He's the anchor for our souls, as was sung earlier. So lift him up in our eyes. Draw us to him in trust. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Ever been in one of those team building exercises where the leader tries to talk the group into doing one of those trust falls? You know, the uh, group of people stand in a line or two lines behind and, and some person stands on top of a table facing way, body held out straight and falls backwards, trusting that everybody's going to hold out their arms and link together and kind of make a bed that the person will fall onto and be, and be caught. And the idea seems to be that that builds trust in a group of people as they all do it and realize that if we don't catch one another, then I'm going to fall hard. Seems to be the idea. Ever been a part of one of those? Ever seen one of those fail? In my limited experience, the most common way that it fails is not that the group doesn't hold out their arms and not that the group isn't strong enough to catch the person, but that the person, the participant, facing away blind, doesn't see the arms, gets scared, balls up, and then collapses on one single person, one set of arms right at the edge of the table, hits his head on the table, falls to the ground, and they both are injured, and the camp never does that again. But that's another story. The point being, it wasn't the arms, and it wasn't the group. They were, they were there, they were ready. It was the trust that wasn't there. And without the trust, the trust fall fails, doesn't work. So the arms are there, but it needs trust to make it work, which brings us to Psalm 125, another one of the Psalms of Ascent. We've gone through five of these so far. All of them in one way or another have touched on the issue of trouble or threat to the people of God, some more explicitly than others. Last week, for example, God's people remembered how they faced dangerous attack, but the Lord stood at their side and rescued them. He was their only hope. He was the one that they needed. The attack was too strong for them. But he was there, and he was and is strong and sufficient, and he saved them and continues to save us, particularly from dangerous spiritual attack. That's the main battle that rages against us. And God is our help. We have escaped and are free. That was last week. And in some ways, it resembles things that we've seen before, like Psalm 121 was uh, prayed earlier in the, in the call to worship. God's our keeper. We will not be struck down. He's our, our help, our shield, our merciful Savior. That kind of thing comes up again and again, and it's here again in our passage today, but with a couple of twists. Perhaps we'll see that how he saves and 
what he's doing is maybe a little bit different, but especially the, the point of this psalm, the uniqueness in this psalm, is that it puts his finger on the issue of trust. Trust is what makes it work. God is who he is. God does what he does. God's there. That's a fact. But if, it's, if he and who he is is not met with in us trust, we don't experience the reality that is present. We don't, we don't find it coming into our lives and hearts and, and being experienced here where we live and, and in, the, in the moments of our lives. So everything that, that is experienced hinges on the issue of trust. And that's what we're going to be considering mostly in, in Psalm 125 today. So I'm going to draw two observations from the psalm, but they are significantly lopsided. The first one's longer than the second, and really the emphasis is going to fall on the first half of the psalm more so than in the second, because that's where the unique issue of trust is most clearly seen. So let me read the psalm and then draw two observations from it. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So two observations, here's the first. Living trust in the Lord is the key to stable and secure standing, now and forever. So living trust in the Lord is the key the key to stable and secure standing now and forever. Verse 1 brings up the main issue right away, those who trust in the Lord. What follows here in this psalm all hinges on those who trust, not those who know facts about the Lord, facts that they agree with even, and facts that they like. Trust. As in, here's trust, those who know and agree with, like, and believe in a surrendered, submitted, depending way. That's, that's trust. It's a letting down of one's natural resistance, the natural guarding, a holding at arm's length of, of someone or something. If you trust someone or something, you give yourself to it in a way that lets down your guard and leaves you vulnerable, exposed to injury if, if they were so inclined to inflict it upon you. That's why I'm using the word surrendered and submitted. You, you have to know some things, you have to know some facts, you have to agree with them, like them, embrace them, be, be agreeable towards them, but then also critically, you must depend on in a, in a surrendered, submitted way. That's what trust is. A simple example, take one of these chairs here. The common example, maybe you've heard it. I may look at one of these blue chairs here, and I may look it all over. I may know everything about it. I may understand the metal frame. I may understand if it's hollow or if it's solid core. I may look at the welds and see the quality of them. I can understand the plastic and its density and how it's wrapped around the metal. I may know everything about it, and I may understand 
appreciate the fact that there is one and agree that chair would hold me up. But I'm not yet trusting in it if all I do is know the facts, agree with them, appreciate them. Biblically speaking, I haven't trusted the chair yet until I have sat in it, surrendered myself to it, given myself over to it by putting my weight in it. That's what I'm trusting when I sit. Those who trust in the Lord, those who know the truth about this Lord, notice it's his name written here as usual. It's all capital letters, L-O-R-D in capital letters. This is his name, Yahweh. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only God who is here or anywhere now or ever. One God, the God of the Bible, this one. You've got to know some facts about him as he's revealed himself to us. A lot of ways we've, we see this all the time in the Bible. We've seen it in many Psalms. There are more things revealed about him that are coming up here. So to know him, to understand him, to welcome that truth intellectually, and then to depend on him in some surrendered, submitted sense giving over ourselves, our will, to, to him and who he is, the facts about him, to him and who he is and how he works, his ways, particularly his ways as he's revealed himself to be working in his Messiah, in the Christ. So you can't say, I'm good up to that point, but then I stop right there and say, I'm with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just not with Jesus. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is Jesus. One and the same. As God has revealed himself to us. So we have to understand, agree with, and trust ourselves to this one at work in Christ, promised all through the Old Testament executed now in the coming of Jesus. Those who trust in the Lord. What of them then? They are like Mount Zion, the text says, which cannot be moved, but which abides forever. Like much poetry, the psalm uses rich imagery here so as to press on us a feeling. Poetry wants you to feel something, not just know it. It wants you to feel it. And so there's something here that's pressing imagery into our hearts that we feel. Mount Zion, in a physical, literal sense, geographic sense, is a part of the ancient city of Jerusalem. Just a part of it. In fact, the main, the core, the central old part of it which is why, metaphorically speaking, all through the Bible it can be used to describe the entire city of Jerusalem, the entire people of God in the Old Testament, the entire people of God in the Old and New Testament, and even the coming city in which the entire people of God will dwell with God, the Mount Zion that is to come, the New Jerusalem. It can be used in imagery like that all through the Bible in all these different ways because originally, geographically, literally, it was a place, a mount. It's like a finger hill or a spur, sometimes you call that. A, a peninsula of a hill 
with very steep sides, valleys all around, and then a fortification on top, which made it very difficult to attack and conquer. If you were defending on Mount Zion, you felt secure. You stood in the fortress on top of the hill and looked at the valley falling away all around. Even more so, if you looked on the fortress over the wall at the valley falling away steeply all around, and then at the other hills, the valley rose up to the other hills even higher at some distance surrounding. Good defensive positions all around for your army to keep the enemy even from getting to the valley, to the hill in the first place. As if somebody's going to fight over those hills, down through the valley, climb the steep sides of this hill, and then attack the fortress. Right there in that spot on top of Mount Zion, you're in one of the most secure places all around. The psalm says, stand there, faithful one. Right there, trusting child of God. Look around. Remember, because this is in Jerusalem, most, if not all, trusting faithful Israelites would have been to Jerusalem, at least for the feasts, or had a family member who had been to Jerusalem for the feasts. And so they could see this. They'd been there, feet on the ground. Kind of like if I was to say, picture Mount Timpanogos towering over Utah Valley. You can see that. Maybe you've even been on top of Mount Timpanogos. Or point of the mountain as it juts out into it. You've, you've driven around it. You've seen it. You've seen the view from there. You can imagine it. That spot right there. Stand on Mount Zion, faithful child of God. Look around. See this. Feel it. That kind of security. Unable to be toppled or overcome, immovable, unshakable, unconquerable. There's staying power there. That's not going anywhere. It's staying put. It's abiding forever. That's the end of verse 1. That's what you are like when you trust in the Lord, which naturally is appropriate because looking out the surrounding hills, he's those surrounding hills circling all around you to keep the enemy at bay on the other side. He surrounds you, his people, keeps you safe. Now, of course, that means now. You're meant to feel it now. And know that this solid, safe security is right now. That's true right now, Christian. Never mind the coronavirus and the hysteria in the world from that. And never mind, if you happen to notice, the Iranian militias attacking in the Middle East again. And don't forget North Korea is there too. And the stability of the economy is, what? I mean, the stock market's going nuts right now. And your retirement account's doing this. And what about your job? Where, where's the economy going? And layoffs have already begun to hit, and maybe more is going to come from that. Are you going to have work next month? 
I don't know. All of that, come what may, in all of that, that's all right now. And all of that right now, in the middle of it, stable, at rest, like the rock of Mount Zion, or like the bookend final statement, verse 5 puts it, at peace. The world all around can lose its collective mind right now. Go to a grocery store. Everything shaken and in turmoil and rumors of calamity and disaster may be real calamity and disaster. And all of that, whatever it is, whatever comes, all of it is like ocean waves, massive and powerful, breaking against rocks. The rocks don't move. The water does. The rocks get wet. The water breaks and shatters into mist, and the rock, the mount, mountain-solid rock, like Mount Zion, is unmoved. Not because you're strong. You're not. Because he is. You trust in the Lord, and he surrounds you, and therefore you are safe and secure from all harm and from every alarm. Held in his hand, kept, protected, now, tomorrow, next year, and into forever. You abide forever. Twice the word forever shows up here in verse 1 and in verse 2. This is especially meaning to make us start now and see that this security, this stability starts now and has no end. So I... I'm held in the hand of the Lord. I am secured now. I'm a rock-solid, sure, safe, stable, surrounded and kept person, people, now and forever. This has no end. Drawn near to him now, saved by him now, kept near the Almighty One, shielded by his hand, saved eternally, destined to live forever, safe in the kingdom of glory constantly we've seen the Psalms want to talk about the danger here and now and stretch our mind to think about them because that's actually what matters. C.S. Lewis talked at one point about watching in World War I, about watching men riding trucks heading to the front lines in World War I and how, particularly those going for the first time, their demeanor drew in close and quiet, and they became sober. He said, not because they were discovering that people die, but because for the first times in their lives, they're being made to think about it. And they didn't know what to do with it. We all die. We shouldn't make light of that, but we should look at it in the context of the Bible and say, this life right now, that long. Whether it lasts another day or another 10 years, that long. Eternity is really, really, really long. And what the Psalms are constantly trying to press on us is, is this reality to make us think about this, make us understand this. He holds you and secures you now, yes, 
but beautifully and far more significantly forever, forever, forever. You abide forever. He surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Now, yes. But one way or the other now goes, and this matters. And beautifully, thankfully, sweetly, he surrounds those and brings to peace those who trust in him. Because the whole story, because at one point it was always his plan to not surround and not protect and not keep safe his son. This is the great exchange the Bible's always been talking about and then finally happened when he executed his plan by executing Christ. Sent him outside the surrounding circle of protection and delivered him over so that you would be kept safe from this time forth and forevermore, you who trust in Christ. This is the truth, and it is sweet. So, do you trust him? Have you ever, for the first time perhaps, placed your trust in Christ, sat in the chair, so to speak? Maybe you've heard some of the facts, understood them, but have you ever actually sat in that chair? Have you ever actually surrendered yourself to him? Maybe all the turmoil in the world right now is making you think about that for the first time, seriously, drawing near to it, not, not aware that death happens, not becoming aware that, wow, there is something after this, but becoming, for the first time, made to think about it. Maybe. There is a way that God has offered to make people safe, stable, and secure now and forever, and his name is Jesus. Maybe you need to trust him and what God has done in him and in his cross. Maybe you need to say, I, I understand the facts about how God has atoned for sin. God paid for sin in the death of Jesus. And I understand the facts about how I'm a sinner in need of that. And I understand the facts, but I'm actually going to embrace them and surrender myself to them. Maybe you need to trust Christ for the first time. And maybe that's what God's pressing on you now as you think about this offer of stability and security in this life and forever for those who trust him. But probably, most of us here, whether you're here physically or here electronically, you're Christian already. And so... You do. You, you follow what I'm saying, and you do, in fact, trust him, really and truly. And you are secure in his hands, and you are one of his, and he does surround you with all the rest of his people, like the hills surround Zion, and he is at work to keep you. You know, you know the, these facts. You've heard them. You'll, we'll see a little bit more of them. He's at work in these ways in your life. This is true, and you know this at least up here. But do you experience it? Do you know it experientially? Do you stand in life 
stable and secure like Mount Zion, unflappable. With a sweet wholeness of a rest in your heart. I'm not talking about the stiff upper lip, I'm, I'm being strong. Our world worships that, and we really try really hard to, to not show anybody to be, be strong. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in your heart, at rest. Okay, I am at peace. I'm not, I'm not moved. I'm, I'm, uns, I'm not unsettled by, by the winds of chaos in the world. Is that you? When and if it is not... That's an issue of active, vigorous, real trust in the Lord. You can tell by looking at yourself. Do you get agitated and worried and fearful and tense? I, I, this, this week, I thought, this is so interestingly providential that this psalm comes up this week. By providence, I mean the, the working of God in, in all of the various circumstances of the world such that Psalm 125 comes up this week. This week has been, somebody stepped on the panic button this week. It has been chaotic. And I, I understand I am not commenting on the appropriateness or inappropriateness of that. I'm just saying that. Every half hour, there's a new red banner on MSN. Something new and alarming happened. That was this week this closing and that closing and runs on things at the supermarket and schools getting closed. Some kids, I know, some kids elated by that. Some kids in tears, literally. Some kids in tears, literally fearing for their lives. Kids. Both ends this week. Anxiety and panic and fear has been prevalent here now this week. And here's Psalm 125. What you're discovering there is a trust issue. As I thought about that and thought about the providence of God and bringing this psalm at this time, I thought, man, that is so good of God, good of him, because this will be a good song for them, which is always an alert when one when a preacher or anybody finds think something that's going to be good for them. Because I had to kind of work back through that for myself. So you, you would notice the trust issue if you notice the fear, and you notice the anxiety, you notice I, I am, I'm being moved, I'm being shaken, I'm, I'm, the chaos of the world is directing my heart. You'd notice in that way, I'm not there. I, there's, the fear and panic is not me. But I'm angry. That's the truth. Not fearful. I'm angry. Combative. Striving for what I think should be and what I think we all need and what should be, the, what, what's, what's frustrated. On, on a light note, I think the reason for spring is March Madness. And now that's over. I'm frustrated. That's also 
That's just the same, a trust issue. So consider it for yourself if that's more where you are. Or somewhere else, some third or fourth option. It is just as much a trust issue. Fearful, tense, anxious, panicked, angry, frustrated, striving for what should be because I know best and must make it so. We all have trust issues. Both of us have lost sight of the fact that around is the arms of God like hills that protect and are securing and are making what is be. And all of his wisdom and goodness, power and love. Comes up a little more later in verse 3. But either way, it's a trust issue. So, so maybe, maybe it's something that's good for you over here. Maybe it's something that's good for you over here or a third or fourth way. We all need to grow in trust of the Lord that knows the facts about him, that understands things up here, but then down here feels, and I'm going to sit in the chair and let you run the world. You are the Lord. You need to grow in trust. And you notice that by noticing I'm unsettled in some way. So how do you grow in trust of the Lord? How do you grow in trust of anyone? By being close enough to someone so that you can see them and hear them and watch them, feel them. Watch what they say and watch what they do and you notice then consistency and honesty and integrity, trustworthiness. And where we see trustworthiness instinctively, we trust. Let's work together. That's how God made us. We just see trustworthiness and then we trust. Something in us is drawn towards, drawn into agreement with, drawn into appreciation for. So are you, are you drawing near to and then sticking close to for long enough this Lord? Which, by which I mean, because he's not actually physically here, you can't actually sit next to him and watch him. By which I mean, are you drawing near to him how he has revealed himself in three particular ways in the Bible where he speaks, shows his ways, Shows his will and his ways, his consistency. Are you drawing near to him and sitting with this word? And are you drawing near to him and sitting with him prayerful? Where we communicate, where we let down our guard and talk to him and let him then speak to us about the things that are here on us. Those things by themselves, but particularly those things with other Christians. The Bible, prayer, with other Christians. Those th three things together. That's how God means to show himself to us, reveal his trustworthiness to us, and draw us on in faith. So you've got to be near him to see him and hear him and understand him. But then, secondly, you have to actually sit in the chair. So the first part would be seeing things, understanding, knowing facts, coming to, to appreciate them. But then you also have to 
trust faith as a verb. You've got to actually take your thoughts captive and submit them to him and say, I will trust myself to you and let you be God. Let you run the circumstance. Let you decide the course of events. And I'll go with that. I have to actually verb trust. Sit in the chair. Trust is the key. The arms are there, surrounding, upholding. Trust is the key. Falling onto those arms will leave us upheld and sustained, kept. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, unmoved, abiding forever. That's the first observation. Much longer, and I think that's, that's the, real, the real thrust of what we need to, to think about today, trusting God. But there is a second half of the psalm, and I'm going to deal with that somewhat more briefly. So here's the second observation. God is committed to give his people real, experienced security, now and forever. God is committed to give us this real experience, this, this solid, stable standing. He wants to give that to us, not just here, but here, now and forever. And so what he does then, in the next few verses, is he does a couple different things that kind of lure us and invite us along. First, we should consider he's the one who gave us the psalm in the first place. He wants verse 1 for us. This didn't come from people, it came from God. He wants us to have that kind of stable, secure life. And he's told us much about himself, much about his trustworthiness already. And we've seen something already in verse 2 about his, his surrounding arms. But there's a little bit more here that, that should be unpacked. Look, for instance, at verse 3. Four, verse 3 begins with a four, that's closely tied to verse 2. And it tells us something here about the reason that God surrounds his people. So he kind of is going to get us into some of God's reasoning to show us what he's about, to, to kind of show us some of that trustworthiness that we're talking about. For, he surrounds his people, for the scepter of righteousness, of unrighteousness, I'm sorry, the scepter of wickedness, the rule, the controlling power of wickedness, shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. So, again, there's Old Testament imagery involved here. Picture an evil enemy king, only holding a scepter. Maybe a Babylonian king. Symbol of, and sometimes it was an actual club, a symbol of his power, of his rule, of his, his royal authority. That verse is saying, will not be allowed to rest on the land of God's people. Not come to a settled control over us so as to become the permanent ruler. Now, did Babylon ever come and attack and ever come and actually overthrow and conquer Israel and Jerusalem? Yeah, but not forever. 
It'll come, but not rest there in a permanent way. It'll strike, but it won't be allowed to rest. Not just, the verse says, not just because God doesn't want that to happen, doesn't want us to ever be subjected to wickedness, ever have an evil power over us, but there's, there's another reason given here, which is kind of interesting. Lest, that won't happen, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do evil. If we suffered under the dominion of evil for too long, what he's saying is, we're so weak that we'd be tempted to give in. We'd be tempted to accommodate, to placate, to copy, to become Babylonians. If that was allowed to be over us permanently, we would be and no longer be God's people. We'd be Babylonians. So to keep us from that, this is how God keeps his people. To keep us from that, from falling into that kind of destructive sin, God promises to deliver. No evil king will have permanent sway over this land, over your lives as a ruler over you. I'm going to protect the integrity of my kingdom, says the Lord. Which for us today... We're moving to talk about kings and, and countries, lands. For us today means God surrounds us to assure that he will deliver us from evil in this world. To surround us and protect us from being swamped by wicked influences, attacks, temptations. Swamped by them. They will strike us. Think of a wave again. A wave is going to come and hit the rocks. And sometimes even the wave comes, hits the rocks, and covers them over. And you say, where are the rocks? And then, oh, there they are. That, that's what he's saying. I'm not going to keep waves away. Trouble will come. Tidal waves will come. Tides will come. The water will rise. The scepter will come and will strike the land. And it will come and it will hit hard. And it will overwhelm, apparently, but it won't. You see what I'm doing there? I keep, I keep the integrity. You, there's the rock. You. It may feel as it's coming, oh no. It may feel as it hits, wow. It may feel as the water rises up to the neck and comes over the head, oh no. Hold your breath. It's going to recede. I'm, I'm protecting the integrity of my people. I promise says the Lord. Well, why let that come in the first place at all? I, I don't know. The Bible does give us some hints about God's purposes and discipline and God's reasons behind different calamities. He gives us some hints, but in the end, we always have to say, I don't know what he's doing in this particular situation. But what he wants us to see is, I'm trustworthy the water comes and it goes. I will not let you be swamped. The boat will not sink. The kingdom will not be conquered and destroyed. And understanding this about him, understanding the way that he works through troubles, not to keep them away, but to keep them from being permanent and destructive. 
Understanding that can grow trust of us in him as we see that pattern and see that's how he's at work and believe then when the wave comes, he'll chase it away because he's going to keep me faithful to him. That's what he says in verse 3. And then verse 4, the voice changes, maybe unexpectedly, to a prayer. So you get verse 1, declaration, verse 2, declaration, verse 3, declaration, explanation, and verse 4 then, prayer. A request of the Lord to do good to those who are good, who are upright in heart, which to be clear, can't take that verse out of context. We've got to read it in the context of the whole Bible, and especially verse 1. Who are the good, the upright in heart, those who trust in the Lord? It does not say, verse 1 does not say, those who do good are like those who trust. The key is trust. What he's building here in 3, 4, 5 is a contrasting difference between the righteous and the wicked, those who trust him and those who don't, those who do good and those who turn aside to their crooked ways, in verse 5. The ones who do good are like a rock, solid, protected, unmoved. And those who don't are actually moved away by God himself. Verse 5. Led away to destruction, eternally speaking. And even if they're physically near among God's people. God will accurately separate the wheat from the chaff. That's a common Bible illustration. The chaff blown away and sent off to destruction, but not so the righteous, those who are trusting in the Lord, whose hearts are right before him, who then live in a way that follows him. This, this is the contrast that he's building here. We, the people of faith, are secured, and those who are not the people of faith, led away. So, what's with the prayer? Why pray? Well, I think he puts a prayer in here. And notice, the psalm itself is a prayer, as all the psalms are. So this is a prayer about a prayer. written by God to us, to inspire us to pray, like verse 4. And I think he does that because of what prayer is and what it brings. God answers prayer. Jesus talked about this all the time. You don't have because... He didn't ask. Ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be opened. God answers prayer. And actually the praying and the God answering of prayer is one of the ways that he keeps us. God answers prayer. So we should ask. We should not just say, I understand the facts that you will keep me, you will surround me, you will, you will protect me, you will chase the waves away. We should pray. Lord, chase the waves away. Lord, keep. Lord, protect and he will. God answers prayer. Because, secondly, of what prayer is, because prayer is actually communing with him. 
But that's why God designed prayer in the first place. He doesn't need us to pray to inform him about what needs to be done. If you're a parent with a child, you understand this, that you, you look at your kids' lives and you know what needs to be done. But what you want often is you want to connect with them. So you, you want to talk to them and you love it when they voice with you, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm concerned about, here's what I'd like, here's what I wouldn't like, here's, here's where I am, here's my heart, let, let me show you. You want that. So does God our Father. I, I know what you need. I, I don't need to be informed. But I want to commune with you because you actually need to commune with me. I want, I want relationship with you. So I want you to sit down here and think through your life and think through your situation and think through your fears or your angers and put them in front of me and say, God, help. Would you show yourself to me? Would you, would you reveal to me what your plans are and your purposes are? So at least enough of it. Would you show me your character and your goodness where I don't see the plans and purposes? Would you, would you please? Exactly. Let's talk, son. Let's talk, daughter. Yes. And what you find in prayer is not just that stuff happens, but what you find in prayer is you grow in trust. And therefore you become stable and secure as God wanted all along. Trust grows nourished by growing familiarity and relationship with God. Trust grows reinforced by the evidence of his good, loving smile and care as he answers. And so you will become a person who trusts in him and who stands stable and secure in a crazy world, able to act in love wisely, able to act in love sacrificially, at peace, looking towards home where your true and final security lies. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your securing arms. Would you please draw us to you and grow in us trust of you, trust in those arms. Make us a people here who are beacons of stability, beacons of rested confidence in you. Make us also people who live sacrificially, who live in love, who act wisely. Lord, there are many things that we need to think about and do that are loving and wise and careful. Many things financially, many things security-wise, many things health-wise, many things 
Would you steer us and guide us and lead us in all of those things? But beneath it all and behind it all, Lord, show us your hand and make us stable. Thank you for your goodness, for your securing of us. Trust ourselves to you. Say thank you and amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.